You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us in the African American Department of Central Library, and welcome to a very special presentation of Writers Live. So we're thrilled to have a representative from our sister city, Alexandria, Egypt, speaking tonight. And I am going to pass the microphone to Karen Leggett to talk more about tonight's presentation. So thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome. We're delighted to, to be here and sort of begin this collaboration with the Pratt and also with uh, the Walters Art Gallery. We're delighted collaborating both with the library and the art gallery, and we thank Paula Willey, who is the Children's Department Manager at the Southeast Anchor Library of Enoch Pratt, and she was with us three years ago in Alexandria, Egypt. We took her there as, as part of a conference we had on informal education at the library in Alexandria, and she spoke to the conference and, and had a chance to meet Heba El Rafe at the time. And when I mentioned to her, Heba's coming to town, can you help us? She was absolutely delighted. So we thank, thank Paula initially, and also thank you to Tracy Diamond, Adult Services Coordinator here at Enoch Pratt, and of course Lisa anderson Ju, the Associate Curator of Art of the Mediterranean at the Walters, where we'll be going shortly. And we hope this is the start of many collaborations among us all. Baltimore actually has eight sister cities, including both Luxor and Alexandria in Egypt, as well as Changwon, South Korea, Gabargna, Liberia, Kawasaki, Japan, Piraeus, Greece, Rotterdam, Netherlands, and Xiamen, China. And if you have any interest in any of those cities, all of those committees are always eager for new members. And you don't have to be from those cities, you just have to have an interest in those cities. You can check out BaltimoreSisterCities.org and look at the long list of events. They've always got events going on all over the city. It's, it's quite a lengthy group of, of interesting cultural activities. And under the Egypt Sister City Committee, we have the Friends of the Biblioteca Alexandrina, Maryland, Virginia, D.C., one of 18 international friends organizations around the world. And as you'll hear from heaven a little while, these organizations started before the library opened and supported the library, the same way as, as our friends of the library organizations do in this country. And they are also eager for, for members. And in addition to bringing Heba here for uh, this whirlwind week of presentations in Washington and our finale here in, in Baltimore, the Friends Group promotes a variety of cultural activities, including films like the docudrama The Sultan and the Saint, which we showed here in Baltimore last year. We also facilitate Skype conversations between 6th and 5th graders in Maryland, Virginia, and Alexandria, Egypt. And it's quite exciting to, to watch these kids suddenly realize how much they have in common all the way over there in Egypt and all the way here. And, of course, the American kids are realizing that those Egyptian kids are also speaking English and speaking it very well. So they've had some wonderful conversations, and we hope to expand schools. If any of you are involved with a school that might be interested in participating, please look us up at baltimoreegypt.org, and there's a contact information there, or get it from me after, after this evening. This week, of course, we're proud to have Heba El Rafay with us, the Director of Public Relations and International Communications at the BA in Alexandria, Egypt. She's been with the BA for nearly 18 years in many leadership capacities. 
Currently, she oversees the Youth Activities Program, which includes a focus on engaging young Egyptians, and she is also the liaison with the group I just mentioned, the International Friends of the BA. Heba's background is Turkish and Egyptian. She grew up in American schools in Saudi Arabia and lived for a long time in the UK, so she speaks a beautiful mix of American and British English as well as several other languages. She received her BA in European Studies from London University, and she received the European Council of International Schools Award for International Understanding in 1991. And this evening, she'll be talking about the ancient Alexandria Library, anew for the 21st century. Welcome, Heba. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen, and thank you to all of you for coming here today to hear a little bit about the new Library of Alexandria and a little about, about the ancient. I'd also like to begin by thanking everyone who made this uh, event happen. Uh, I'd like to f thank, of course, the Enoch Pratt Free Library, uh, Paula, Tracy. I would like to thank the Walters Art Museum, uh, Lisa, for your assistance, and I look, very much look forward to our tour later on. I thank, of course, the Baltimore Luxor Alexandria Sister Cities uh, Council and, of course, the uh, Friends chapter that we have here. So, I will, without further ado, we'll talk a little bit about the ancient Library of Alexandria before we go on to the present. So, it was common practice in ancient Egypt to include a library as part of the Egyptian temples and the royal palaces as they, was, they were viewed as a, a learning and academic research center that would be closely tied to religion and temple life. So the ancient library of Alexandria that many of you may have heard of before was actually dreamt by Ptolemy I Soter in around 285 BCE. And it was built in what is known as the royal quarter of the ancient city of Alexandria. And it was part of the Museon and became a famous scientific research center. So at its peak, the Library of Alexandria was said to have about 700,000 scrolls in the library. And these scrolls were in various languages. And the library, therefore, served as a home to a plethora of international scholars and resident poets, philosophers, and scientists. And they enjoyed considerable academic freedom. So some of the people who did actually study or spent some time at the ancient library, you might have heard of before, but not have connected them to Alexandria, starting with, for example, Eratosthenes. Now, Eratosthenes was a Greek mathematician, geographer, poet, astronomer, and music theorist, and he also held the position of chief librarian at the library. And he's the one who is responsible for inventing the discipline of geography. And he was also the first person to calculate the circumference of the Earth from Alexandria. And if you use modern technology and compare the actual calculations that we have using our computers, you'll find that he was really a fraction off. And the method that he used is actually practiced in the summer solstice, the 21st of June, every single year by the children at the Library of Alexandria today. Now, another interesting uh, person who studied in Alexandria was Aristarchus. Again, he was a Greek astronomer and mathematician, and he also held the position of chief librarian. And he was the first person to place the sun at the center of the universe, stating that the Earth was the one that revolved around the sun. And he also put the different planets in their correct order and distance from the sun. Kalimachos, another Greek, but of a Libyan, actually, of Greek origin, 
Um, he's a noted poet, critic, scholar at the library, and he was responsible for producing the bibliographic survey, or what we consider to be cataloging today. Who's heard of Euclid? Well, he's often referred to as Euclid of Alexandria. Now, he's a Greek mathematician, and he's often referred to as the father of geometry. And in fact, his famous work, which was called The Elements, was used as a main source or textbook for mathematics even up until the early 20th century. And that was specifically even in the area of geometry. They weren't all necessarily of Greek origin, um, we also had very important Egyptians who were involved and did some great work at the Library of Alexandria, including the Egyptian priest Manitho, or Manitho, and he was the one who put the chronology of the reigns of the ancient pharaohs into order or into what we now know as dynasties. So those are some of the uh, scholars who were at the ancient library, but there were also very important activities which took place, and one of those is the Septuagint. Now, the ancient library of Alexandria acquired many of its scrolls, and either they would purchase the scroll, or they would take them from passing vessels from, from the Mediterranean, and often they would even take them from Athens, and saying that they would copy them and return the original, although sometimes they would return the copy. Um, and many of these scrolls were, in fact, translated. And one of the most famous translations in this instance is the Septuagint, and it's the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And it was conducted by uh, 70 Jewish scholars, uh, therefore known as the Septuagint. So what happened to the ancient library of Alexandria? Well, many people have different theories, but the theory that we believe to be most true is the following. The library of Alexandria probably lasted of about 140 years, up until the uh, year 48 AD, when the Alexandrian War took place. And this was basically a clash between Ptolemy XIII, which was Cleopatra's brother, and Julius Caesar. And in an attempt to uh, win the war, Julius Caesar actually set, fi uh, set fire to his fleet at the docks. And unfortunately and unintentionally, this fire further spread out to the royal quarter and probably damaged much of what we believe to be the ancient library of Alexandria and its contents. Again, as the years passed and Roman rule started to enter, um, more and more of the pagan temples or what were viewed as pagan temples were no longer desirable, and so many of them were destroyed, including some of the daughter libraries, which actually started to pop up around the royal quarter. Um, and in fact, the destruction of one of the daughter libraries at the Serapium took place in about 391 AD. Eventually, Alexandria became a center for Christian learning, privileged by the teaching of Origen and Clement. Um, by the time the Arabs actually entered Egypt under Amr ibn al-As in 642 AD, there really wouldn't have been anything left of the Library of Alexandria or its scrolls. So what I like to call from conception to inception, how do we get from the ancient Library of Alexandria to the new Library of Alexandria, or what we call the Bibliotheca Alexandrina, or you may hear some of us refer to it as the BA, just for convenience sake. Well, in the 1970s, the late uh, Professor Mustafa Al-Abedi, who was an Egyptologist and historian, and Dr. Lotfi Duidar, who was the president of the Alexandria University at the time, dreamt of reviving this legacy of the ancient library, and they proposed it to the Egyptian presidency who immediately took up the project and requested that the UNESCO be involved in order to revive this great legacy. 
and they wanted it to be a contribution to the development of the region as well as increase understanding of that region around the world. And the UNESCO agreed, and hence they conducted an international architectural competition. And the, uh, the actual architects who won in terms of their design here was a very small Norwegian firm called Snoetta. And they had five architects, one of which was actually Egyptian. And so the, la- the new Library of Alexandria was going to uh, revive. And it was in 1990 in Aswan that world leaders, including various royalties such as Queen Noor of Jordan, uh, Queen Sophia of Spain, even including the late François Mitterrand, the president of France at the time, um, they got together and signed this declaration forming the International Commission for the Revival of the Ancient Library stating that they would like this to be the first library to be designed and constructed with the assistance of the international community at large. So the foundations began for the construction of the library, and the project amounted to about 225 million U.S. dollars, of which 100 million dollars were in the form of international donations. And the new Library of Alexandria suddenly existed, and it's actually very close to the ancient royal quarter of the original Uh, Library of Alexandria. And the new Library of Alexandria has four objectives. One is to be the world's window on Egypt, to be Egypt's window on the world, a library for the new digital age, and a center for learning and dialogue. As you can see in terms of design, this main building there, which is taking the tilted circular shape, is there to represent the sun, rising in the horizon, and that it is there to receive all kinds of information and knowledge from the Mediterranean basin to the entire world. Surrounding that main building is a very large granite wall, and it actually has uh, the engravings of 125 alphabets from around the world throughout time. And this is basically to symbolize encompassing the world's knowledge regardless of whatever language it comes in. And there is a bridge, if you can see there, going through the main building. It actually starts at Alexandria University, which is on the opposite side of the road, through the Library of Alexandria and into the Mediterranean Sea, representing eternal knowledge. Finally, there is a planetarium, and this is representing the Earth, which revolves around that tilted sun. So... The new Library of Alexandria has been dedicated to recapturing the spirit of openness and scholarship of the original library, and you will see in the next few slides that it is, in fact, much more than a library, and it was officially inaugurated in October in 2002. So we spoke a little bit about some of the ancient scholars and, and scientists who visited and stayed at the Library of Alexandria, so it's only befitting that the new Library of Alexandria is also home Uh, to new scholars and visitors. And some of those who have come and visited us, you can see, come from various backgrounds, including, for example, the late Professor Ahmed Zouil, Nobel Laureate, the director Martin Scorsese, Dr. Faru Ilbez, Umberto Eco, Wole Soyinka. Those are some of the people who have come to the Library of Alexandria. And most recently, we've also had our president, Abdel Fattah Sisi, Pope Tuadros II of Alexandria, Sheikh of Azhar, Queen Sophia of Spain, Prince Henrik of Denmark, the President of Cyprus, Laura Bush when she, her husband was president, um, and even actors such as Vin Diesel and Ray Fine. So all backgrounds, all nationalities have come to the library. So after all, it is called the Library of Alexandria, so it's important that we talk about the fact that it is a library. 
Now, the overall objective of the library at this point is not just to be a storage for books, but to be an access point for information. So we have the main library of Alexandria, and this is for all of our patrons who are 16 years and above. And in fact, this reading hall is the largest open-stack reading hall in the world. It contains currently over 2 million books and monographs, including digital content, over 100,000 e-journals, extensive e-resources, and it also can houses a francophone library. And that was the result of maybe one of the largest donations from one organization to the next, when the Bibliothèque Nationale de France gave the Library of Alexandria 500,000 books. So that actually makes our francophone library the fourth largest francophone library outside of France. So we actually our halls accommodate around 2,000 readers. We have over 8,000 members. And the actual design is there to house up to about 8 million volumes. And that's including both open and closed stacks. Our users are um, able to access the computers, and in fact, the Library of Alexandria is a member of the International Federation for Libraries Association, and one of our department directors is actually on the governing body for the second year. Um, we have 98 of these columns that you can see in the photograph there, and in fact, at the end, they take the shape of the Egyptian lotus flower. Um, Again, we offer community service, access to academic research and theses, and we also are a depository library for various organizations, including the UN, the EU, and the Arab League. But we don't have just a main library. We also have uh, specialized libraries. So, for example, the Arts and Multimedia Library. This contains over 50,000 items of books, musical scores, periodicals, the audiovisual collection, and it has an archive of all of the musical and cultural performances that actually take place at the BA. We have a maps library of over 7,000 items, but we can't negate the fact that learning and love for reading has to start from a young age. So while our main library is there for our patrons who are 16 years and above, we have a specialized children's library and those are for children starting six years to 11. We receive about 23,000 visitors per year. They have access to their own computer lab and activities room, storytelling, puppet show, multimedia corner, and they also have access to a large collection of books. And the books are available in various languages because, as Karen might have mentioned, our, our children actually speak various languages. They might go to an English school, a French school, a German school, or what have you. We also invite various children's authors to come and read to the children. And obviously, they peak during the winter break and the summer break, where we collaborate with different departments in the library to offer specialized workshops for the children. What happens when they turn 12? Well, they have their young people's library, and that's also dedicated for those who are 12 to 15 years, over 18,000 visitors a year. Again, they're there to increase their awareness and knowledge through reading, and they also have access to digitized books as well as e-resources. So you can see that they get together and they perform a number of different workshops. Now, we also have a specialized library for those who have visual impairments or who are blind, and this is called the Taha Sin Library after the famous Egyptian blind novelist Taha Sin. We have over 700 patrons who are able to come and, again, access all of the resources available at the Library of Alexandria through selected web technology, through large print, through braille, or even audiobooks. 
We also don't just provide them with the re-resources, but we also do mobility workshops, for example. And this specific uh, workshop actually targets mainly children and women and teaches them how to use the white cane in order to be mobile independently in this society. We also have rehabilitation programs for preschool children to get them to learn Braille and to be able to be better integrated in the society. We have a vast number of digital books, and these basically provide access to information for print-disabled people. The idea behind the digital book is not that it just simply is an audio uh, cast of or, or somebody reading, but they're actually able to search the content and go forward and go backward and look for a specific word or to a specific chapter. And this is done against international standards of something called DAISY. And in fact, the library is the first in the Arab world to have its own studio that produces Arabic digital talking books using this DAISY standard. And we are the first in the world to produce the Holy Quran in full text and audio for our patrons. And in fact, we produce probably over 200 books to date. We also have a very special unit called the Special Needs Unit, and these are basically for our patrons who have all types of mental disabilities, whether they're cognitive or learning. And what we do is we actually do an assessment for each individual, so we have a a specific tailored program for every single uh, patron. And we get them to come in and and we do speech therapy lessons. We get them engaging with the rest of the society. They have special computers that they use. But it's not all inside the unit. They also get involved in cultural activities. So you can see many of those patrons who are involved, for example, in a choir concert. So what about cultural activities? Yes, so we are a library, but we also are a cultural complex. And in fact, the Library of Alexandria actually houses four museums in-house. And they're no longer simply there just to display items, but to involve all of the patrons in their education process. Now, you might be surprised to hear that we actually have an antiquities museum. Now, I think we're the only library in the world to actually house an antiquities museum. So why? Is it because we're in Egypt and that's what we do? Well, mainly, maybe, partly. But actually, when you start to excavate and start to, you know, dig to lay the foundations of the Library of Alexandria, it's very, very difficult to dig in the ground after over 7,000 years of history and not come across artifacts. So that's exactly what happened. We located about 111 artifacts in that specific site. If you recall, it's very close to the ancient royal quarter. So it was decided in cooperation with the Ministry of Antiquities to have our own Antiquities Museum, and that's what it is. So the museum itself has a section talking about ancient Egypt, and that would be a span of about 3,000 years. And the artifacts here are, are various, and they try to focus a little bit on the intellectual and artistic side of the civilization. But we do have mummies, and people do like to see the mummies. So we have our own coffins as well here. You have a wooden coffin. Um, This was from Upper Egypt. Then it goes on to the Greco-Roman section, which is in fact our largest collection. And this would be between the period of about 323 BCE up until about 31 BCE. And this is an example of one of the artifacts that we have, which is actually located, it was found in Alexandria by one of the Polish expeditions, and it is the bus for or the head for Alexander the Great. Then we move on to the Byzantine period, 
and the Byzantine period would cover from about 395 AD to about 642 AD. And one of the uh, most famous pieces here is this icon, which depicts Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of glory, and he's surrounded by the symbols of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we move on to the Islamic period, which would be anything from 642 AD on up until about the end of the Ottoman Empire in 1924. And an example of one of the artifacts is this hanging lamp from the Mameluk period, and it has decorative writings on it from the Holy Quran. So we go back to those site artifacts I spoke about, the ones that we found when we started to lay the foundations. Um, and they are housed within our museum. And within those artifacts are very, two very interesting floor mosaics. And I'll tell you a little bit, I'll show you one of them. So this is a floor mosaic, which is in rock marbles and rock limestone, and it dates back to about the 2nd century BCE. And you can see in the center there, there's a dog, and it's a very unusual actual depiction, and next to him is a Greek vessel. Now, I always say this to anyone who comes to the Library of Alexandria, so I must also share this little insight with you. Every single time I see this floor mosaic, I'm always reminded of his master's voice. And it seems very, very interesting, but I'm sure that they haven't seen this floor mosaic because they existed from before. Now, not only do we have antiquities underground, but we have a lot of antiquities in the Mediterranean itself, in the water, and there have been a vast number of exp excavations to, um, to take those sunken antiquities out. And in fact, they've been very well preserved in the Mediterranean. So there, in fact, is a submerged antiquities collection and this particular collection is actually currently on tour now. It's gone to various cities around the world. Most recently, it was at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And in fact, it will be going next to the Reagan Museum in California in October. So if anyone is there, you might like to catch this exhibition. Now, we may be talking about antiquities in the ancient past, but that doesn't mean we can't tie in with the present and the future. So our Antiquities Museum has created an antiquities website. And there you can go from the privacy of your own home, log on, and you'll be able to see many of the artifacts I spoke about and all of the other collection in more detail and get more information about that. We also have something called the uh, Wall of Knowledge. And this is actually just a, a, a printed copy of the Book of the Dead or the Papyrus of Ani. And what we have done is we've created an augmented reality application at the library where you can use that on your phone or your iPad and place it in front of the wall, and then it becomes alive and tells you a little bit more about the different aspects in that. And this is actually available in three languages, Arabic, English, and French, which incidentally are the three official languages of the Library of Alexandria. They do a vast number of education programs with children. They host exhibitions from both Egypt and from abroad. They also host guest lecturers. And for example, this is Professor John Darnell, who's from uh, Yale University. Now, similar to the Antiquities Museum, we most recently established in 2018 the Zay Hawes Center for Egyptology. Have any of you heard of Zay Hawes? No? Well, he's our Indiana Jones of Egypt with his hat. Okay, he's a very famous Egyptologist, and he has actually come to the U.S. quite a number of times. Now, this center is actually located in Cairo, as opposed to um, Alexandria, and it focuses on raising the public's awareness about archaeological heritage and the means to protect it. But it's not just under his namesake, he is actively involved. So, for example, uh, last December, he took many of the children uh, celebrating the International Day of D Persons with Disability 
to the pyramids at Giza and explain to them in person a little bit about the history of the pyramids. So our second museum is the Manuscript Museum. And the Manuscript Museum aims at cooperation in scientific exchange with other uh, manuscript museums around the world. Now, the actual museum displays about 120 manuscripts and rare books, but their collection goes into the thousands. That includes original manuscripts as well as photo printed. But it also houses two pieces of the Kiswa of the Holy Kaaba, or the covering of the Holy Kaaba, which is in Mecca. Now, these two pieces actually date back to about 1936, and they were donated by the grandchildren of the Egyptian economist Talat Harb. And this is actually done in silver and gold thread, the brocade that's on it. The oldest manuscript in our collection dates back to about 978 AD, and it is an interpretation of the Quran by somebody called Al-Busi. Now, what's actually important about this particular manuscript as well, not only is it one of the oldest manuscripts in the world, but it also shows a transition in the Arabic script. I don't know how many of you are familiar maybe with Arabic, but if, you, if I have a letter like that and I add a dot on the bottom, it gives me one sound, which would be b. If I put the dot on the top, it'll give me another sound, which would be n. So you can see the placement of the dots is very important. Well, in the past, uh, the Arabs were actually very, very proficient in their language, and they didn't need the dots at all, and they were able to read perfectly fine without those annotations. Well, with time, it became more and more difficult. So this shows the transition between not using the dots to using the dots. Our oldest rare book in the, print, in the museum, it was printed in Venice in 1482. Now, what about the ancient Library of Alexandria? Has anything survived from that? Well, it is claimed that this is the only surviving vestige from that ancient library, and it is a papyrus where the original is actually in Vienna, in Austria, but this is a facsimile copy. It's very difficult to read. It's written in ancient Greek, but it's said to have sort of like an index of some of the scrolls that might have been located at the ancient library. And once again, the past ties in with the future or the present, and we do a vast number of digitization projects. This is particularly important for the actual manuscripts because they're in such a fragile state that researchers want to access the information, but we don't want to actually ruin the, the book itself or the manuscript. So they're able to do that equally. Again, many education programs about Arabic heritage, and we have our own conservation lab in-house that is there to protect, maintain, and restore all of our documents, our manuscripts, and our rare books. Now, our restoration lab actually does mainly work for the BA collection, but we've also done a lot of work for those other organizations around us, such as the Suez Canal Authority, such as the Greek Orthodox Patriarchy, such as Al-Azhar al-Sharif, and even those further outside of the country. Our staff have become so highly skilled and trained that they are able to become leaders in their field. And in fact, many restorers from around the world come to be trained at the Library of Alexandria and they get a certificate so they can then go back and become professionals in their field. This is just an example of the manuscript. This could be due to uh, humidity, to temperature, to lighting, to insects, what have you. And then that's an example after its restoration. And in fact, we have actually pioneered as uh, the first lab in Egypt to use nanotechnology for the restoration fibers. And what's important with our restoration process is that it is reversible. So in the future, if there's a better way of doing it, we can just simply undo what we have done and do it in the new way. 
Our manuscript center obviously is, import, is uh, concerned with the actual Arabic heritage and publishing scholarly critical editions as well as translations of publications, and they gather scholars to be able to come and discuss different aspects of manuscripts. Now, our third museum is actually the Sadat Museum, and it's for the late President Anwar al-Sadat. It's one of three of, in Egypt, and it contains a vast collection of his personal possessions, including video content, honors and decorations, uh, documents, and so on, and a recording of him reading the Quran in his own voice. It also contains a vast number of medals and collection of his civilian and military suits. And here you can see perhaps the most important suit, which is the bloodstained military suit he wore on the day he was assassinated on the 6th of October, 1981. Finally, we have a history of science museum that talks about the sciences throughout the ages in Egypt, from ancient Egypt up until the Arab Muslim world. Well, we also appreciate the arts, and so we have a number of artistic and other exhibitions. This particular exhibition is the Impression of Alexandria, the Awad collection, and this is an, a collection of maps, lithographs, photographs, everything pertaining to the city of Alexandria between the 19th and 20th century. We have an exhibition for Shadi Abdel Salem. He was a very distinguished artist and an internationally acclaimed filmmaker. He was also a creative costume and set designer. And one of his famous movies is called The Mummy, or The Night of Counting the Years. We have an Arabic calligraphy collection from Muhammad Ibrahim. We also have a history of printing in Egypt, and this is the Bulak Press. And the Bulak Press was the first printing press that was brought to Egypt under the rule of Muhammad Ali Besha in 1820. And in fact, the first publication to come out was an Arabic-Italian dictionary. So it just showed how Egypt was still concerned with um, actually conversing an intercultural dialogue, and that was in 1822. We also have an exhibition talking about scientists, famous Arab scientists, particularly in the area of astronomy. Folklore and different cultural outfits and, and, and costumes and, and ethnic jewelry from around the region in Egypt. Um, the Artist Book. Now, the Artist Book is actually a biennale which takes place, and it was initiated by the library, and it brings uh, international artists from around the world who present their creative work and their interpretation of the book. And they are preceded by a five-day workshop, and then they have an exhibition, and we keep those pieces. But another important exhibition that we do for artists is also called First Time, because it's not all about the internationally acclaimed, but it's also about the young budding artists. So we provide them with a space to present their work to the public where they normally wouldn't have that opportunity. We also have a number of sculpture and ceramic collections, such as Mohiddin or Adham Hanin, or, for example, Ahmed Abdul Waheb. And his, this particular artist is actually very concerned with the figure of Akhnaton or Akhenaten, as you might know him. And we have a specific sculpture collection, and the BA is becoming a hub, actually, for sculptures and uh, sculpture media. We also have the visual arts, such as Hassan Suleiman, Farouk Shahata. Stephen Adam Wenli, but it's not about the arts only. We actually have an exhibition about the digital world because we are living in the 21st century. And this presents a number of digital projects that we take place at the library, and I will tell you a little bit about those in a moment. 
at the library hosts about over 1,000 events per year. So every single day, whatever day of the year you choose to come and visit us, there will be something going on. It could be a performance by one of the, uh, some of the children who attend the BA Art School. And they cover 15 different activities, such as music, dance, theater, the visual arts. And here you can see the children who have learned the violin through the Suzuki method. It could be a theatrical performance, either from a local uh, director and actors or somebody more further afield. In fact, the Library of Alexandria was chosen to host the one-night-only exclusive of the performance of Hamlet by the Globe Theatre in London. And that was on their world to tour in 2015. But we also encourage uh, local artists and bands, and we provide them the platform that they can actually engage with the audience. And this is usually done during our International Summer Th Festival, which is actually taking place starting tomorrow. And you can see that the plaza area, the space between the buildings, is full of people who are enjoying the music. But it's not about the modern, we also have the classical. And this is actually our own resident BA orchestra. Yes, we also have our own orchestra. So we do more and more workshops with the children, and of course we hold conferences, whether they're on a local, regional, or international level. We are also selected mostly as a very good venue for very high-profile events. And for example, in December 2018, this was a joint meeting of all of the Arab ministers of tourism and culture who decided to come and convert our main reading hall into their high-profile meeting. But we are a library and we are concerned with books, so of course we must have an international book fair every year. And this lasts for about 10 days to two weeks, and we invite publishing houses from around the world, including one guest of honor country, and we also have a very intense and active cultural program. Um, interestingly enough, not only are they just publishing houses, but we also have something called the Sur al-Azbekeya. And Sur al-Azbekeya is actually an area where we sell old and used books, so that people of all different financial means are able to come and find something interesting to read. What about the sports, I hear you cry? You must you do something about sports. Well, sometimes we do. So rather than putting up a stage and having concerts and performances, we also have a squash tournament, for example, which took place in 2015. And this was actually the Alexandria International Squash Open for Women, and I'm very proud to say that the squash, uh, Egyptian squash players, be it men or women, are actually top-seeded. Are you a squash player? Oh, no, but you like squash. <laughs> yeah, great. So they are actually doing very well. So we also have the Planetarium Science Center that I spoke to, spoke to you about. And this has basically become a leading Egyptian institution for informal science education, and meaning that science is for all. It consists of the planetarium that we saw earlier, which is a member of the International Planetarium Society, and they actually have started to produce their own full-dome shows, including some about Alexandria, about the enlightened mind, and whatever. We also have the History of Science Museum that I spoke to you about before. And we have something which we call the Alexploratorium. Now, the Alexploratorium is basically a hands-on science facility which targets young children, and they're, be able to, they're able to come in and experience science in almost everything that they see, hear, and touch in everyday life. So it's a very interactive area for them. They have a number of regular activities. If you recall, I referred to the measuring of the circumference of the Earth on the 21st of June, so this is an example of that. They also have a number of different workshops that they hold throughout the year covering all different sorts of science. 
And we have also the science festivity. Now, this has been held annually since 2006, and it hosts about over 7,000 students from Alexandria and around the region that come and they like to engage in different scientific activities in a, a very interesting and lightened way. We also host the International Science and Engineering Fair, and these are for high school students to come and do their research and present their paper and their prototypes. And those who win then come here to the United States and they take part in an international competition with students who are like-minded around the world. And in fact, in 2019, this year, we won the top three prizes. They also host a number of conferences and lectures. And for example, this particular guest lecturer is called Omar Samra. He's the first Egyptian to climb Mount Everest, uh, the seven summits, to ski both to the North and South Pole. And he's also one of three Egyptians who have been selected to go to the moon with the NASA program, and so the Egyptian flag will be placed on the moon very soon. And if they don't come to us, we go to them, we go to the schools through science club initiatives. Now, as you can see, we are very much in the sciences, and being only 17 years old officially, we are proud to say that we were born in the 21st century and thus born digital. We are an active member among a leading number of digital institutions. Now, we're going to get a little bit technical, so please bear with me here. We have over 3,300 computers, databases, electronic resources, millions of pages of digital text, thousands of hours of digital film and video. But we also house the Internet Archive, and this is the only backup copy and mirror site of the Internet Archive, which is actually in San Francisco. And this is a recorded memory of all the pages on every website on the Internet since 1996. And since acquiring this, our staff have locally um, added to the infrastructure and the software to advance uh, in four point, to make it 4.9 petabytes of data. We have a supercomputer, which is a high-performance computing cluster facility, and I will tell this to you just so, because it's going to astound you. This particular computer can perform up to 118 trillion calculations per second. So you can imagine that the researchers who are able to access this computer can use it for bioinformatics, nanotechnology, and many more. We have a digital lab, and the digital lab is basically involved in the digitization process of all of the collections available at the library. And they work in close cooperation with the International School of Information Science, again at the library, to create such things such as the memory of modern Egypt. We always focus, or many people focus, on the ancient history of Egypt. But we are very much present today, and we will be very much present in the future. So this particular website talks about the last 200 years only of modern Egypt, and it contains a vast collection of documents, films, uh, recordings, what have you. And they also produce a quarterly magazine to support it. But again, we also have archives for our president. So this is an, a website for the late Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the second president of Egypt from 54 to 70, one for the late president Anwar Sadat from 1970 to 81. But we also have for our first president, who was there from 1953 to 1954, Mohammed Naguib. And we don't only service the... Uh, Egypt, we also service the region. So we've also embarked upon the Arab Memory Project, which does the same for the Arab region. Again, a digitization project for one of the most important actual volumes called Description de l'Egypte, and this was commissioned by Napoleon Bonaparte during his expedition in 1798. And it is a 20-volume book that has plates and text, and these are fully digitized, fully searchable, 
You can zoom into the minutest detail and you can do it from your home tonight when you go back. All accessible for free. Again, we have academic research centers as well. So we have one in Cairo that deals with cultural natural heritage and they actually created something called the Panorama which is a painted uh, nine screen interactive screen that shows the timeline of Egypt. They also created the award-winning Eternal Egypt, which is similar to the Antiquities Museum database, but this actually deals with antiquities that are outside of the BA collection. And they also concerned themselves with folklore and cultural heritage, and for example, created a book with an accompanying CD for a very famous Egyptian artist called Oma Kalsum. We have our Alexandria Mediterranean Research Center that deals with the region where we are, and they create a vast number of maps and ever-changing city and names. And they also create also cultural tours. So if you want to do the, tur the Ottoman tour of Alexandria, you can have a specialized map for that. And they most recently created a map for children to get them engaged, obviously, in the city. They have a website also dealing with Alexandrian culture, which is the cinema, for example books of people who have actually studied or lived in Alexandria, such as Kavafis or Lawrence Durrell or the sacred places that you can find. But again, we go back, it'd be always going between heritage and culture and ancient history to the present and the modern. So we have a center for special studies and programs, which deals with scientific research. And it provides, for example, grants for postdoctoral uh, Egyptian researchers and also those for those who are in the high school Age. They host the uh, BioVision uh, conference, which takes place every two years. And this is in partnership with the World Life Science Forum. And in fact, they have a Nobel Laureate Day. So we have Nobel Laureates who come and visit us, such as these here, for example. But they don't have to have win won the Nobel Prize. They can just be eminent scientists, such as these emin uh, eminent American scientists. We spoke about the granite wall that contains 125 alphabets. So, of course, we must have a writings and script center that actually sits and researches and documents the languages throughout the ages and throughout the region. And recently, they've launched the hieroglyph, Learn Hieroglyph website. So when you go home and after you finish going through the memory of modern Egypt and all of the other websites, you might like to sit down and learn a little bit of hieroglyphic. How do I write book, I wonder? So you can write book there in English, and then it'll tell you how to do it in hieroglyphs. And they actually have online courses. And of course, being a research center, they produce various publications. And there's also a website dealing with inscriptions from around the world. But we all know who rules the world, and I saw this in, a, in the National Geographic, and it says women who rule the world. So we have a Women's Studies and Social Transformation Center. This was actually established in 2017, and they conduct a vast number of research. They have their own data collection program. They in, try to influence public opinion and help shape public policies concerning women, and they gather key eminent women from the region to get together to host seminars and conferences. Um, we have a center for Coptic studies and Coptic heritage, which is pertaining to all Egyptians. And the center focuses on its heritage and its preservation. And they also have their own magazine that comes out regularly. A center for Islamic civilization studies and Islamic reform and thought. Uh, again, they deal with something called reissuing the classics. So we talk about those very prominent Islamic authors, and we reissue the books and try to explain it again, those particularly from the 19th and 20th centuries. But we're back to the present day in the sciences again, so we go back to sustainable development. What about the environment? What about energy? Well, we certainly do that, and particularly with the youth. So we have a young 
Youth for Environment, Sustainability, and Better Understanding program, and these are from 13 to 18 years old. But we also have those who are a little bit older, so we call them the League of Young Masters. And given that Alexandria is a focal point for many students from other African countries, we created the African League of Young Masters, and that also assists them to better get involved in the community. But we know not all African countries speak English, so we have a Francophone League of Young Masters. So you can see we try to cater for everybody that is involved. And that leads me quickly on to youth activities. Well, we spoke about the young children, we spoke about the young people. What about the youth, those who are in universities? So we created something called the Youth Activities Program, and that basically focuses on four areas, being entrepreneurship, uh, youth culture, how to be a responsible citizen, and this is Africa. And entrepreneurship, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Nobody wants to have a nine-to-five job and a boss over his head every day. So, okay, we can do that. How do you come up with an idea? How do you create the startup? Where do you get your funding from? And that's what the young people learn. Youth culture. Is there something called youth culture? Is it something specific to them? Do youth across different cultures able to communicate? Um, so we have an international youth culture conference. We do simulation models for various organizations that you can see here. But we also have something called I'm a responsible citizen. How can that young person give back to the community? How can they get involved in volunteerism? How can they enable themselves for positive action? It could be through green projects and recycling. It could be also through running anti-drug campaigns with the younger people around them. And because we have a very, very good close connection with the, Afri with the uh, young community, when Egypt hosted the African Cup of Nations of football, or soccer as you call it here, they called upon the library to gather all of these young volunteers who would help to organize. And we have a very close connection with Africa. Doing the model of the African Union, providing a specific website for African researchers to access resources they wouldn't be able to having specific conferences, providing them with specific grants. Coming to the BA, we have over one and a half million visitors a year, and I hope that you will be one and a half million plus one, and over about 600,000 readers. You can have a guided tour in a number of languages. But be rest assured, if you don't come to us, we're going to come to you. And we can do that by trying to entice you to come to the library to learn something new. So we have a professional training institute. I can ask you what you want to learn. Come in, have a look at our website. You like a course, you found something you're interested in, please come in. We also have embassies of knowledge. We will go to the Egyptian universities. We can go further afield. And we're actually present in about 20 out of 25 governors currently. We have our own studio department where we create our own films, our documentaries. We're available on YouTube, so go find us there as well. And naturally, if we're on YouTube, then we must also be on social media, otherwise being Facebook. We have a vast number of publications, over 800 titles at the end of the day. Our Facebook page there, you can follow us there and have all of the activities that we do. We already have over 100,000 followers from around the world. And my goodness, where do you get the money to do all of this stuff? I mean, there's so much going on. Well, the BA is actually has an annual budget from the Egyptian government. Uh, government, but that's mainly for operational and administrative expenses, but we also do a lot of cooperation between us and other organizations who fund us, and these are some of the organizations who have been involved so far. Well, finally, all of this couldn't take place if we don't, and I wouldn't certainly be here also, if we don't have the support of our friends from around the world. 
And the Friends of the Library are a group of people who share their love for humanity and for the Library of Alexandria. And they developed in the 1990s and had annual meetings in various places until the Library of Alexandria officially opened its doors in 2002, where they actually come every October for their annual meeting. And um, they listen to our programs and services, and hopefully they come back to your communities and tell you a little bit more about what we do. They provide donations as well, and we actually currently have chapters in 18 countries, four in the USA, one being here in Washington, Maryland, and Virginia, one in New York, one in Minnesota, and one in California. And they also engage with other organizations, for example, Books for Africa, which send hundreds and thousands of books every year, and they also take part in something called Dialogues for Peace or Dialogues in Peace, which is an exchange program between schools in Egypt and other countries worldwide. But it's not all just work. They also have a little bit of fun traveling around the country and seeing different things. And I really sincerely hope that at the end of my talk here, I've intrigued you a little bit to come, first of all, to access the websites, come and visit Egypt, Come and visit the Library of Alexandria, and I'm not exaggerating if I've taken 45 minutes of your time, but I've given you literally just the tip of the iceberg of what we do. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you very much for being here, and uh, I'm not sure we're going to have time for questions, but I will ask you because we really need to respect the time uh, you know, for Walter Museum to go and to give us a tour. But I would like to take 30 seconds just to recognize Hebe uh, for Stella, uh, Stella, <laughs> for Stella performance for a full week of back-to-back -back, uh, talk uh, at Library of Congress, at uh, Department of State, at uh, George Washington University, and uh, ending it here at, uh, you know, the Baltimore Free Library, right, Free Library. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Do we have time to take one or two questions? Uh, what do you think? Yes? Okay. <laughs> that there's anything that you don't have. What do you not have? <laughs> what do we don't have? We don't what are you have? looking forward to? Yeah, um, I think the, the, the opportunities are endless. I think we can think up of new things all the time, and time is always changing. So we try to react to what's current at the moment while keeping respecting our past, but also looking forward to the future. Um, the sports, yes, we dabble in a little bit, but maybe we could do more in that area. Um, zoology might be another area, but even then I could tell you that we're participating in a website called the Encyclopedia of Life, and that basically gives like a page to every single species in the world, and we do the Arabic content for that. So I'm very hard-pressed to find something that we don't do, but if you think of something, please do let me know, and I will put it forward. One other question. In the ancient library... Well, most of the manuscripts in Greek, what was the languages that were represented? Oh, they were in various languages. I guess they were predominantly in ancient Greek, to be honest. Um, but they tried to, as I said, if, for example, if any ship was passing through the Mediterranean port, it became almost a fact that they said, okay, whatever scrolls you have, let's bring them, we'll translate them, or we'll copy them. So you have languages, whatever ancient languages were predominant at the time. That's interesting. Yeah. Did you say that the ancient library was destroyed in 600 CE? No, no, no. 
Oh, it was probably first destroyed in 48 AD during the Alexandrian War, mm -hmm. and then the years following that up until about 300 AD. What I did 300. say was that when the Arabs entered in 642 AD, there wouldn't have been anything left of the ancient library of Alexandria. So, and this library didn't start until 1988. It was dreamt in 1974. Construction, the Aswan Declaration basically forming the library was in 1990. Construction then followed thereafter. And the official... So official my question is... Where, where was all the library stuff in between all that time? Well, it was That's a huge amount of time. Yeah, it was destroyed, but you're talking about how many years of existence. I mean, it was probably burned, destroyed, under the rubble. We don't know. And I did show you maybe what they claim to be the only surviving papyrus from the ancient library, but there's nothing else. It was else. almost 2,000 years. So what were people doing for library and, and scholarship and academics and well books I, and I imagine that the library still continued but on a smaller scale not to this same level of international um, attention or expense so it would have been smaller libraries and still pe people continue to learn I mean you have those who are later on for example Hypatia or others who came to Alexandria and they still learned but it wasn't in the same sense of the cultural aspect that the Library of Alexandria was part of a huge museum and a shrine of muses and so on. So it wouldn't have been to that scale. So were they private within homes and universities or churches? or? Well, there would be a university, but to be quite honest, I'm not a historian in that particular era. Maybe Lisa might be able to help us with that particular question. But I would imagine that scholars ship continued but not to that same scale how it worked i wouldn't be able to tell you but i can certainly find out and let you know and we can do uh, one more question your relationship with with um, the city of Alex alexandria how it must have impacted the city a lot and changed oh, yes. the culture yeah well uh, in terms of our staff we have about 2300 staff members um, but they are from Alexandria and all of those embassies I spoke about in the different governorates as well as Cairo. Uh, bearing in mind, we have our, also our own internal security and our own internal housekeeping, which tends to up the numbers a little bit. Yes, we have a very good relationship with the Alexandria governorate. Um, we are in close cooperation with the Alexandria University, with other government institutions. In fact, our, our library has its own law. So we don't actually belong to any government ministry. We belong directly to the president of Egypt. So we have a vast amount of support. And, uh, and yes, I'm sure that the, the presence of the library has also boosted tourism to a certain extent in the, in the city as well. Yeah. Thank you again so much, Heba, for being here. Um, thank you. Karen, Tharwat, Paula for helping yes. organize, and thank you all for spending your evening with us. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.